If you have your copies of God's Word, we're going to continue through um, a difficult but precious part of Scripture here in Romans chapter 9, and we're going to pick up in verse 14 as Paul unpacks the subject of sovereign election. And he picks up in verse 14 and he says this, What shall we say then? Is God unfair? What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on man who wills or on man who tries to achieve and runs, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Moses, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he has mercy, whom he desires, and he hardens the heart of those he desires. Tough passages. What do they mean? We're going to unpack that and then talk about how that applies to our life in our relationship, not only to one another, but to our Heavenly Father. But before we do this, let's ask that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that we would submit ourselves to the Word of God and be transformed into His image, not demand that God be made in ours. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before You. And Father, I have one request this morning. I pray that Your power would be seen in this passage. That Your power would be seen in the lives of Your children that Your name would be glorified in our lives. Father, You saved us to be transformed into Your image, and You will never, ever abandon Your purpose for saving us. May our church be alive. May our our minds be renewed. May May our lives be transformed so that all the earth may see your power. And start with me. And Father, I pray these things, and I ask these things in your Son's precious name. And if you think the Detroit Lions were robbed, say amen. Amen. (laughs) Stupid Super Bowl. That's not fair. Have you ever heard those words? Anyone at all? At least in our culture, that has slowly faded away, has it not? That's not fair. How many of us have said these words and how many of us have been accused by these words? But the truth of the matter is, is that fairness presupposes that we have a right to something. That we are owed something. And those rights and obligations are being violated. We must 
clarify our understanding of what fair is and is not before we move into this passage. For example, wages are owed. Wages are deserved. Gifts are something that are bestowed. If I were to walk up, let's, let's use, well, Jeff, you're up here. How was Florida? Great. Great? Yeah. Did you go to church? You, okay. <laughs> Imagine for a moment, where's Amy? Is she still in Florida? Is there marital issues right now? No, I'm just teasing. Because <laughs> that's what we assume immediately. No, where is she at? Oh, she's at Camp Boy. Let's just say you just got engaged, right? That, we'll go this way. Just put the ring in the air just so everyone can see. He got her a gift. Expensive gift. Does, remind me of your name, my friend. I'm sorry. I'm te- What's that? Levi. Levi got her a gift. Now, does Levi owe everyone in this room a gift as well? (laughs) Is Levi required to engage everyone in this room? (laughs) No, no, I'll suddenly change your mind. Not my type. All right, no. Does he owe us all a ring? Does he owe us all a gift? No. Better yet, does he owe everyone in this room? No. Why? Because no one can claim the rights to a gift. No one can claim a right to a gift. No one can say to Levi, where's my ring you owe me? Because it's a gift. And he can, he is free to give that gift or withhold that gift to whoever he wants. A gift is something that is undeserved. It it is not owed. When someone owes you something, it is because you have earned it. It's because you deserve it. Let's use the idea of wages. And I'm going to come over here to my friend Kurt Detzler, and it's an easy question because him and I agree on this. And by the way, all of us will agree with this, but I'm just prepping you, okay, Kurt? How does a homotoluted... No, I'm just teasing. All right. Let's use the idea of wages, okay? We're going to use the idea of wages. At the end of the week, Kurt, and you have worked 40, 50, 60 hours at the end of the week, does your boss owe you wages? Yes, he does. How many here would agree with that? Say amen. amen. We are owed wages. Why are we owed wages? Because we have what? Talk to me. Anyone? We've earned them. We're owed them. They are owed. They are deserved. If, if our boss pays your wage at the end of a long work week, is your boss fair? What's the answer? Yes. Does he still owe you a bonus gift? No. So let's unpack with some simple question. Here's a question. What are the wages of sin? Hmm. The wages of sin is spiritual death. Do we deserve, church, do we deserve our wages? Have we earned our wages? What's the answer? Yes, we have. We've earned them. That is what is fair. Church, do you want what's fair? I don't. I do not want what's fair. What is a gift of God? The gift of God is what? Eternal life. 
Gifts are owed. All right, I'm sorry. Are gifts owed? No. Must gifts be given to all? No. I want you to read this verse with me, and it looks a little bit like this right here. For the wages of sin, what is deserved, is spiritual death, but the undeserved gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Fair would be that we are all paid the wages of death, eternal damnation, for we have all earned it with our sin. Mercy is that instead of those wages, we are gifted eternal life. Here's a question. Do you want our, do you want your fair wages or do you want a merciful gift? We are not owed gifts. We are only owed our wages. Let me be very, let us be very careful what we believe God owes us. Last week we looked at how God chooses some out of many to receive the free gift of salvation. This is known as the doctrine of sovereign election. God has graciously, all right, God has graciously chose before the foundations of the world all those who would be saved. That is the definition that we have been working for, working with through this time. This is the golden chain of eternal security. He foreknew us, he predestined us, he called us, he justified us, he glorified us. Here it is. It is all God. As one pastor noted, one of my mentors, and I want to say this with humility, some pastors in an effort to avoid controversy will not teach the doctrine of election. They know it upsets people. Or we will look to soften the definition in a way to try and make it uh, make God seem more fair and acceptable to our standards of democracy and free will. But Paul doesn't do that here. In love, Paul doesn't do that here. And, and I want you to hear this because the universe, the universe is not a democracy. It is a theocracy. Amen, church? Thank you. God is not waiting for our vote. He is not, as one bumper sticker said, you know, Satan voted for you and God voted for you and you're going to decide the deciding vote. This is a theocracy of the universe. The fact that Paul is addressing the, the issue of fairness here tells us that we have the right interpretation of sovereign election. If we were to, to refine this or, or minimize this or soften this definition, there would be no reason for Paul to address fairness or injustice. My friends, wages are fair, gifts are mercy, wages are old, gifts are given. Let me say it another way. Fair is hell. Unfair is heaven. And it's here that we walk in to is God unfair? 14 through 18. The first thing he says is, there is no injustice with God, is there? Paul can literally hear Patrick booing and hissing from the pews of the church in Rome. That's not fair. That's unjust. But Paul doesn't run or hide or soften or reduce the definition of sovereign election. In fact, he proactively puts it on the table and as the primary objection to it. 
He just didn't move on, hoping no one would see it or ask any hard questions. By the way, you ever do that? You ever say something that might be controversial and just kind of hope they won't notice or ask any questions? Don't bring it up. Paul doesn't do that. He puts a spotlight on it. Paul, who, who has the equivalent of today's two PhDs in early ancient Israel, who is, who is far out... Listen, if Paul never got saved, we would have still known about him through the history books. He is brilliant. He is an absolute brilliant, educated Pharisee, and he puts a spotlight on the sovereignty of God. If he, he parks the car and stretches his legs, if you will. He says, I'm going to run from this. And he starts with an introductory answer. Is God unfair? And he says, far from it. The Greek is meganeto. It is the strongest negative the word of God can produce. It literally means God forbid. May it never be. A thousand million times, no. Absolutely not. Why such a strong response from Paul? Because to accuse God of injustice is blasphemy. To accuse God of injustice is blasphemy. God himself is the measure of justice and righteousness. To say that God is unjust is to say that, now grab this, God is not God. For there is no unrighteousness in God. There is no injustice. There is no iniquity Also, if God is not absolutely fully sovereign, then he is not God. Meganeto! But Paul doesn't end it there. Have you ever heard the words, because I said so? Anyone at all? Just stop it. Why? Because I said so. Paul brings it further. Paul, with the authority of apostleship, And the missionary to the Gentiles who's weeping over the salvation of individual Jews at this time says not only may it never be, but he unpacks it even more. He moves into it. He leans into it. He unpacks his answer and says the word for right there. He introduces the explanation as to why God is not fair. For. He said to Moses, have you ever had someone seem to shift subjects and you can't quite follow that's my first reading of this you know you're talking about as god isn't fair and now i'm now i'm about moses in exodus chapter 23 before he said to moses i will have mercy on whom i have mercy and i will show compassion to whom i show compassion now jews in the first century church in rome would have known exactly what this meant it would have exploded with meaning because they know they know the whole context of mount sinai word for word by by absolute perfect memory of it They've been taught it as a child. Now us, we've got to kind of remind ourselves a little bit. First, I want you to notice all the pronouns here. Notice all the pronouns here. God is the speaker. This emphasizes God's supreme authority in making sovereign choices. God owes no man nothing. All of it is his will. He is the authority of his mercy and compassion. In order to fully understand this, we have to understand the context of what Paul is drawing from here. Allow me to summarize it for the sake of time. In Exodus chapter 32, all of us may remember this from Sunday school. Some of you may not, but here it is. Paul has just come down Mount Sinai with the the Ten Commandments. 
When he arrives at the bottom of the mountain of Mount Sinai, he finds that the nation of Israel, people, and Aaron have already made a golden calf and were worshiping it. It's almost comical if you think about it. He gets to the bottom of it. Now talk about the wages of sin. Talk about what the nation of Israel was owed at that time. In our inability to achieve moral perfection for salvation through works, before Moses could even get down the mountain, while the tablets are still hot and he has oven mitts on them, all right? He comes down the hill and give me, give me the primary command they're already committing before Moses even gets down the hill with the tablets. Thou shalt not what? Have any other gods, any other idols before me? And what are they doing? They're worshiping an idol as he comes down there with the out of the oven fresh Ten Commandments. And they're idol worshiping. They have already broken the moral law of God with their free will. So Moses goes back up the mountain. That had to be a fun walk for him, was it not? Oh. He goes up the mountain to make atonement for the sin of Israel, Exodus 33, 18. And he begs God, show mercy, show mercy. And then he gets a little bold with God. Have you ever gotten bold with authority? He gets a little bold with God and he says, listen, God, if you don't show these people mercy, then don't show me mercy, judge me. And Moses literally says, if you don't forgive them, God, then blot my name out of the book of life as well. How many here know it's probably not in your best interest to give God directions? Anyone at all? That's pretty bold. Do it or else. Do it or take me. By the way, what a beautiful picture of what Paul is already weeping that he could lose his salvation for the sake of individuals in Israel. Moses on a mountain saying, I'll give up my salvation if you will just forgive them. All the parallel there, let us not miss it. It's almost as though the Old Testament had a a purpose of foreshadowing things to come. Now, the Old Testament is not a dead book, amen church? It just just points us to Christ. It points us to, to redemption through him alone. Now, I'm summarizing this, but we're going to read what God's response here. I'm summarizing this, so read it for yourself. But for the sake of time, God says this. I will blot out of my book whoever I want to blot out. I will add whoever I want to add. This is Revelation, by the way, the book of Revelation. I will punish who I punish, and I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Here's the point. Can mercy be demanded? Talk to me. If grace and mercy is demanded, if it is owed, it is no longer grace or mercy. It's wages. The very essence of grace and mercy is that it's voluntary, that it's unearned. You see God's response there. And he, all the pronouns, I am am in charge of it. Now that we understand this, we can look back to last week's study about Jacob and Esau, the elect represented with Jacob, Jacob get undeserved grace. The non-elect, represented by Esau, get justice. But nowhere in God's plan for salvation is there injustice. There are just wages that are owed and gifts that are given. Nobody gets injustice. And then Paul, just in case some in the church are trying to explain it away, 
trying to soften what Paul means here. He makes it crystal clear. He says this, so then it, I want you to grab it right there. So then it, what is it? It is referring to salvation. Your salvation, my salvation, their salvation. It, it is the subject, all right? Referring to salvation, Romans 9, 1 through 5. Here it is, Romans chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Anyone have a guess where we're going now? 7, anyone got another guess? 8 is all about salvation. All of it, about God revealing himself. Of, of the Romans road, if you will. Nowhere in God's plan. Paul will set forth the doctrine of election with such clarity that he leaves us no room to redefine it, no room to blur it. Otherwise, we couldn't be talking about whether or not he's fair or not. He says, so then salvation. Salvation. Get ready. Does not depend on the person who wants it. Some of your translations will say, on the one who wills. Or the one who runs, in the clearest possible terms, Paul tells us that God is the fundamental factor of salvation. M.L. Jones says it another way. He says this, this verse says in the clearest terms that salvation is not initiated by a faith that originates in us, but rather that is, that is initiated by God. Now some of you may say, and I want you to know I echo this as well, but what of my free will? What of my free will? I like how one theologian brought it out. Horizontal free will. That's creature to creature. That's me and you. That's, that's Corey and I. That's Amy and I. That's us and each other. Here on earth. Now this is an oversimplification because we can't unpack this deep of a subject. And in the two hours that I have this morning, horizontal free will, creature to creature, husband to wife, Friend to friend, Congress to the Senate. I know. <laughs> yes. Our free will, we are free to make decisions all day long. What shirt am I going to wear? Where am I going to go? Who am I going to date? What am I going to eat? How am I going to eat more? Do I want to eat that? Do I like to eat that? I probably should stop eating. How many here can relate to that free will? <laughs> Where will I work? Whether I choose to sin or choose not to sin, that's horizontal free will. And I want you to hear that. We swim in it. It's one of the reasons we, we go up and down in our progressive sanctification. It's one of the reasons we grieve the Holy Spirit. We quench the Holy Spirit or we glorify our Heavenly Father because we are using our horizontal free will. God has given you that. But vertically, between God and you, now I want you to see this huge distinction, no longer creature to creature, no longer horizontal, but vertical, creator to creature, we are in a different universe of free will. It's a huge distinction. Vertically, your free will, creature to creator, is limited in that God's free will is greater than your free will. God's free will is greater than your free will. Plus, your free will is limited in that you are dead in your sins. Can we all agree that dead people have limits? Can I get a witness? Yeah. 
Some may say they have no what? Ability. Remember, we preach to caskets. God what? Cracks them open. God must interrupt our horizontal free will as we are a slave to sin. We are dead in Christ. We are formed with iniquity in our mother's womb. He must interrupt our horizontal free will with his greater vertical will. This isn't a hard concept, really, if we think about it. All free will, by nature, is limited. You can run north, east, south, west, all you want, but you cannot run up to heavens. No one's going to say, I'm, I'm taking a marathon to Pluto. We would look at that person and we would see them as what? Give me a word. Crazy. Why? Why can't I use my free will to run to Pluto? Because here's the first thing, we don't know if it's a planet or not. Amen? <laughs> Keeps vacillating between the two. Have they made a decision yet? Anyone? It's not a planet? Yeah, it's great. Thanks, childhood, for that. It's beyond our ability. Now, just because it's beyond our ability, does it mean we, do we still have free will? Yeah, yeah, we have free will. It's just limited. You can choose to swim in water all you want, but you cannot choose to live under water. Do you have free will? Yeah, you certainly do. You have free will. But your free will is limited by your abilities and possibilities. We are dead in our sin. R.C. Sproul divides this well. He says this, We all have free will. We have the ability to choose what we want to be. That is true freedom, but it is always and everywhere limited by God's sovereignty. Anytime man's free will bumps up against God's free will, it is no contest. God wins. The reason it does not depend on the person who wants it. What is it? It is salvation. It is the only subject unpacked in Romans so far. Go ahead and leaf through the first eight and nine chapters. Paul is weeping over their salvation in Romans 9, 1 through 5. To say that this passage is something other than personal salvation, we would have to say that the Romans road is not about personal salvation. Who of us would ever say that here? There has not been a single transition to anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it is salvation. Does not depend on the person who wants it. Pray tell then where does it belong? But on God who has mercy. And his mercy owed, talk to me church, it's a gift. I heard that. And let me tell you why. Because apart from God's intervention and His mercy, no sinful person wants or desires to believe in Jesus Christ. Romans 3, 10 through 12, subject, personal salvation, speaks clearly to this. Left to man's horizontal human free will, will never understand, will never seek God, will never turn away from sin, will never become use, or will, will become useless in their sin, will never do good. How many? Not even one. 
Hear this, church, and weep for joy, for mercy and grace that is a gift. If God did not choose us to be saved, no one would ever be saved. God must intervene into our horizontal dead free will with his effectual vertical free will and initiate the change. Now, some of us will say, and I am one of them, but I really feel like I was the one who chose Christ. And I want you to hear this. You did. You did choose him. You did decide to accept Christ and place your faith in him. You did choose to place your faith in Christ. Here it is. And I love the imagery here. You did choose to be born again. What this verse explicitly tells us is that when we choose to be born again, we must fully realize it was God who induced the labor. But Paul, if God is in control of this and we need his intervention, why doesn't God just save everyone? I've asked that question. Why doesn't God just save everyone? After all, isn't that what a loving God would do? Does not the Bible say, not wanting any should perish, there it is, but everyone would come to repentance? That seems pretty open. That seems pretty free willish. That reminds me of free willy. How many are old enough? That's right. You go to Blockbuster and walk around for 45 minutes because the VHS tape wasn't there. So you wait by the return bin, right? Hoping that what? This has nothing to do with our text. What about my free will here? First of all, we need to understand the context of 2 Peter 3, 9 is about the elect of God. But with that withstanding, there is a pretty big question here. And I I I want you to answer this question to start with. Does God's free will stop at yours? Does God's free will stop at yours? Or does your free will stop at His? Did Paul willingly come to Christ? Can, I just, can we just unpack Paul talking here? This is one of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of examples that we'll unpack in a moment. Did Paul willingly come to Christ? Or was he knocked off the horse and made blind? And the Lord said, you're mine! Churches, answer these questions. Is God all-powerful? Is he sovereign over all things? Is his free will greater than your free will? Then if God doesn't want anyone to perish, second perish, you know, perish, second Peter three nine. If God doesn't want anyone to perish, here it is. Why does anyone perish? Because there's something greater at play in salvation than our deliverance. There is something greater at play in salvation, your salvation and mine. It than our deliverance. It's not all about us. I want you to hear this. God loves you. God sent His Son to die for you. God saves you. You are precious to God. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He holds the golden chain of salvation so that you are eternally secure. It is not by your effort. But the primary reason God did all of this was not simply to save you from hell. 
The primary reason is not simply that we are saved from hell. Salvation is not all about you. It's not all about me. It's not just about us. There is a greater purpose at work in salvation than just us. What is it then? What is it then? We see it in the very next words. For this very reason, it is because of God, he raised you up. And this is not spoken to a believer, but in a person who decided not, I'm sorry, but in a person God decided not to give the free gift of salvation that is not owed, but rather the wages of sin that are. Pharaoh. This is written to Pharaoh. I raised you up, Pharaoh. The whole Old Testament story of Israel being delivered out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt is a foreshadow of how God delivers us from the bondage and the slavery of sin. Israel was delivered from the bondage of slavery and it was all of God. He did it all. All the way down to the Passover. Hence Paul's use of it here. How did God, uh, how did God do that with Pharaoh? Well, this is what he did. He hardened the heart of Pharaoh. In fact, the first five plagues, the first five plagues, God gave uh, Pharaoh the opportunity to respond. And the scriptures make it very clear. After the first plague, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Second plague, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Third, hardened his heart. Four, hardened his heart. Five, hardened his heart. Six, God hardened his heart. Seven, God hardened his heart. Eight, God hardened his heart. Nine, you know the rest. Why didn't Pharaoh respond? He can't. It's who he is. It's who we are. We're dead in our sins. Now, grab this. Why didn't God just soften Pharaoh's heart and all of Egypt and everyone, Jew and Egyptian and Gentile, just dance into the desert celebrating their newfound unity? Why, why didn't God have Pharaoh and Moses just dancing the jitterbug in the wilderness? Well, we're not left to wonder. In order to demonstrate my power in you. In order to demonstrate my power in you. And do not miss who the you is in this text. The you is Pharaoh. God hardened the heart of Pharaoh and chose Moses. And by the way, both are sinners. Grab this. Both are murderers. Moses is a murderer. Pharaoh is a murderer. One is chosen, the other is not. The you is Pharaoh. God hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he chose Moses. He chose Jacob over Esau, Isaac over Ishmael, Abraham out of Ur, the one thief on the cross and not the other, Peter over Judas, the centurion over Pilate, and not because his power is limited, because there is something greater at play than just our deliverance. And here it is, that my name might be proclaimed throughout all the earth. By the way, it's also why he transforms you into the image of Christ to glorify himself. God will never abandon his purpose for saving you. So why does God not just save everyone? Because the primary reason for salvation, here it is, it's right up there, is to demonstrate God's power and glorify himself. That is the primary reason. It's why he hardened Pharaoh's heart and why he chose Moses. 
Through sovereign election, God demonstrates the power of his mercy through his, through our, through his choice. By allowing others their choice, dead in their sin, by allowing their choice of rejection, he demonstrates the power of his justice. And in both cases, God gets all of the glory and none of the blame. As far as the east is from the west, there is not a hint of injustice. There is not a trace of unrighteousness, for he is righteous in all of his ways. So what does this mean to us right now? How does this affect our understanding of salvation? What is it that we have to apply here? Paul is talking about salvation. He is addressing the question, is it fair that God is sovereign over this? I'm going to close with this. I think when we finally understand what Paul is saying here, it will humble us beyond measure. That God, owing us nothing but our wages of sin, decided for the purpose of glorifying himself. See the primary subject there? For the purpose of glorifying himself interrupted and awakened our horizontal free will with his greater free will and gave us eyes to see and ears to hear. And now, rather than seeing Jesus as repulsive and loving sin in the world, we now see Jesus as the greatest treasure in the world. We run to Him. We choose Him. We cling to Him. We trust Him. We follow Him. Not because He has given us justice, but rather because He has given us the unmerited free gift of His mercy. And one day, I will stand in heaven solely because God gave me a gift I could not earn rather than the wages I did. And then, in my utter embarrassment and shame, I will be given a crown of salvation, a crown of life, and it will be given to me. And I need you to hear this, church, in that moment, with my eyes fixed on Jesus, what else will I do but throw the crowns at His feet and cry, Holy For the mystery of election will be clear. And here it is. It is all Him. It's all Him. And we're not there because He didn't want heaven without us. We are there because what He did with you brings Him more glory. Oh church, may we hear this verse. Maybe for the first time, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and originator and creator and perfecter of our faith. And because of this in our lives, Christ is becoming everything. The bride is becoming precious. God's law is too wonderful. Obeying Him is not an obligation. It is adoration. For I was once lost, but he, he found me. Oh, it is too wonderful for words. Sovereign election is the most loving doctrine our ears could ever hear. God could have been perfectly just to leave us in our sin. But instead, he interrupted with the sovereignty and chose us for His glory. He did this for the sole purpose of conforming us into the image of Christ so that He might be glorified. That's why we are saved. Because of this, He will never abandon you. He will never leave you. 
And once he begins a good work, he is faithful to complete it in you because God will never abandon his purpose of saving you, which is to make you like Christ. He did it with his foreknowledge, his predestination, his calling, his justification, his glorification. God, church, is God unjust? No. When God gives us the wages of sin, he is just. When he gives us free salvation, he is merciful. But nowhere is there injustice. He is holy. 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 And he is righteous in all of his ways. Friends, I want to encourage you to resist asking the wrong question. Don't ask yourself, am I elect or not? It's the wrong question. Rather, ask yourself the right question. Have I repented and believed? Have you cried out, God, be merciful on me, a sinner? Do you feel his calling right now? Run to it. Run to it. Choose to be born again. God may very well be inducing your labor right now for his glory. In a moment, we're going to sing How Great Thou Art. Two responses. If you are a born again child of God, sing with all of your heart. Respond in worship. If you're not sure and you have the feet to do it, walk up here and talk to me. See what God can do to a dead man and a dead woman so that one day in glory when people look at who you once were and what God has done with you they'll just sing louder about his glory and all the crowns will be around his feet if you don't know him this morning come come up here if you do sing with all of your heart gracious father I pray that your effectual calling will be strong in the lives of your chosen right now. Father, I pray that your word would not return void, for you said it wouldn't. Father, work in our hearts in such a way that we are drawn closer to you in our life and drawn to you in salvation. To you be all the glory and honor and praise for how great you are. It's in your name we pray. Amen.